you can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning again, and welcome to Church of the Cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today we are coming to the conclusion of a sermon series on the questions of Jesus. Through this fall, we've been focusing each week on a particular question the gospel writers record that Jesus asks of his followers, his disciples, the crowds around him. These questions have been our focus for two primary reasons. First, that in attending to these questions of Jesus, we might grow in our capacity to discern, to listen for his voice, his voice in our lives. As we've dwelt upon the questions that Jesus asks, questions that prompt, challenge, inspire, and draw us in, we can turn ourselves toward the ways Jesus now, today, by his Holy Spirit, is speaking, inquiring, prompting, and challenging. Our e-news this week was involved in encouragement and invitation to contemplate, to contemplative practices, listening, discerning the voice of Jesus. The second reason we've focused on these questions through our series is really quite simple. The questions Jesus asks are of primary importance. The questions Jesus asks throughout the Gospels touch on the most fundamental areas of concern and significance for human life, today and in every age. I hope that the immediacy of Jesus' questions and teachings has come through to you. The reality that who he is and what he had to say in his earthly ministry are of continued and integral importance for our lives. In all that we face and encounter, all that matters to us today, the person, the voice of Jesus remain vital, central, integral. The question Jesus poses in our reading this morning from John 21, the final in our series, is no different. Do you love me? Vital and important. Even if it perhaps doesn't seem like it. There's something that seems almost unsophisticated about this question and answering it for ourselves. The language of love can seem wishy-washy, inadequate in some way to the problems we face, the lives we lead. Commitment, responsibility, duty, and justice, these terms strike us perhaps as more robust and meaningful. I remember a few years ago, the science fiction movie Interstellar described love, the love shared by a father and daughter as transcending space and time as a force stronger than gravity. Despite the movie's sophistication and amazing technical effects, the critical response, especially to this theme in the movie, seemed to be a collective eye roll. Really? Don't speak, of us, speak to us of love, we might say. The language distracts, it obfuscates from the real issues at hand. Be more realistic. Yet Jesus, on the beach in John 21, the resurrected Lord, at the end of his earthly ministry, speaks of love. He asks of love, the love of his friend and disciple. Simon, son of John, do you love me? What are we to make of this? I think we look at this question of Jesus's through three lenses. First, we can see this question as an extension of Jesus himself, an extending of himself toward Peter. Second, we can see it as an excavation of desire, 
a bringing to the surface of what is most important, most loved. And third, the final lens, we can see this question as the excising, the removal of shame. So it's an extension of himself, an excavation of desire, and the excising of shame. Three lenses to help us understand this question and its import for our lives today. First, Jesus asks this question as a means of extending himself. Of course, the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry can be understood as extending himself, as the extension of God himself. Jesus, the living word, the word that was with God in the beginning, the Son of God, God from God, the very embodiment of a God who is love, is the extension of the Godhead into a broken and sinful world. The cross itself is God extending himself at great cost that sinful people like you and me might enter in to his life and presence. The beginning of the Gospel of John describes Jesus' life as a coming to his own and entering into the neighborhood, a tabernacling among humanity. In Jesus, God is extending himself even to those who do not receive him, to the faithless, the sinful, to you and me, even today, across our city, our nation, our world. So this question, as an extension of, extension of himself, fits with who Jesus is. It's what he does. And the exchange depicted in our reading occurs, of course, after the disciples had all abandoned Jesus in the hour of his crucifixion. Peter, chief among them. They'd proven themselves faithless, that in that crucible moment, their confidence, their trust in Jesus was insufficient, such that they couldn't be present to him. They couldn't be with their friend in his hour of need. This would have been a bitter pill to swallow for all involved. And Peter's failure is especially egregious, not only to have simply abandoned, but to have denied even knowing his friend at all would have been this terrible offense. In doing so, he's denying all who Jesus claimed to be, all who Jesus was to him, all that he'd meant to Peter. It's a failure of faith and trust. The gospel writers Matthew and Mark depict in the third denial, Peter calling down curses. And the language is a little bit ambiguous there. Some translations say he called down curses upon himself, but some interpreters think he called down curses in the third and final denial upon Jesus. I don't know this blasted man. One writer describes these as nothing less than the actions of a traitor. Considering all this, we might expect Jesus to at the very least hold back, to have Peter come to him, to kind of ice him out until he comes to confess and apologize. We're all, of course, familiar, having been in those awkward arguments where things are said that you wish you could take back with the friend or the spouse, and then there's that awkward moment after the argument where you both are kind of waiting each other out. Who's going to come first? Who's going to bow the knee first, acknowledge their fault? We might even expect that there could be some kind of welcome from Jesus, but that there would be the need for Peter to prove his loyalty, prove his trustworthiness in some kind of way. Acts of penance in Christian history arose from similar circumstances. 
Christians who had denied their faith, recanted their faith under persecution from Rome, sometimes desired to return to the faith, return to the church. Considering the threat the the community of the church faced, such people could be welcomed, but only after they undertook some kind of penitential action, the giving of money, engaging in some clear action of self-denial as proof of their trustworthiness, restoring trust. In this situation, following this traitorous betrayal, Jesus requires no such action of Peter. Jesus resurrected Jesus, having just defeated death in the grave, vindicated as the Lord of life, initiates the conversation. He extends himself. Back on the shores of Galilee, in the same place where Jesus first called Peter, Jesus, with a body of glory, having just triumphed, extends himself to Peter. In his shame and self-loathing, you can imagine Peter hanging back. Simon, do you love me? Your heart, your affection are still dear to me. You remain of great importance. You have a place with me and in my work. Do you love me? The question itself is grace. Many of you, of course, will be familiar with the famous Uncle Sam Wants You, the recruitment poster. Uncle Sam wants you for military service. Of course, Uncle Sam doesn't want you in any specific individual kind of way. Uncle Sam doesn't really know you. He wants your body, your place in this larger organization. But Jesus, who knows all things, who knows Peter's heart, who knows your heart and my heart, who knows us in our specificity, in our failures, our faithlessness, desires and wants us. He wants you. Whatever this past week has held, Whatever failures have marked your life, this is the heart of God toward you. He desires you. Having disqualified yourself in so many ways, he still now is extending himself. Jesus, glorious, victorious in grace, comes to you today, calling and asking. The second lens is that this question is the excavation of desire. The language of love is, of course, the language of desire. At the root of Peter's denial, his failure of faith and trust, is a failure of love, a misaligned heart and desires. Speaking of Peter's promise back in John 13, to not abandon to not deny, even if all the others do, Dallas Willard has written that Peter made a vow that his legs could not keep up with. He meant it. He meant what he said. But as the phrase goes, his mouth was writing checks that his body couldn't cash. He was making promises that his loves could not support. Jesus' phrase phrases the question in verse 15 as, do you love me more than these? Read in connection with Peter's promise to remain, even if all these others fall away, so great was his love for Jesus, right? It seems as though Jesus is inviting Peter to consider 
the strength of his affection or desire. Consider what it is that he most deeply cares about. The things that we love, of course, are not always what we say or even think and believe. Do you know what you love the most? In another science fiction movie, Stalker, a writer and professor exploring are confronted with a room that upon being entered is said to grant those who do enter whatever it is they desire the most, whatever it is they most deeply love. They pause, as anyone would or should, because do you know what it is that you desire? Do you know what it is that you love? Do you know what it is that your heart is inclined towards, centered upon? Peter's denial is revealing of what is most important to him. His commitment to Jesus, to be with Jesus, only went so far as his deeper commitment to self-preservation, the love of his life. Peter had every intention of remaining with Jesus, but his love for something else made it impossible. For ourselves, that deeper desire might be similar. We love our lives. Our hearts might be most inclined toward comfort, security, societal acceptance, toward the thriving of our children, a commitment to a particular social vision or agenda, the loves or desires that define our lives. In asking this question, Jesus has more and better for us. In the Gospel of John, obedience to Jesus is connected to love. Those who love me keep my commandments, says Jesus. Our affections, our habits, our practices are reflective of our deep loves. And a love for Jesus manifests itself in actions, participation with him. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's answer to the question is, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, do this work. The exercise of Peter's vocation, the fulfilling of his calling, we might even say the fullness of his life, of who he was made to be, is linked to his love for Jesus. Peter's love for Jesus will be revealed in his life devoted to the followers of Jesus. To love Jesus is to become a participant in his work and mission. It is then to engage in the actions of Jesus, to participate in his life extended to and for the world. I don't know what your particular participation looks like. Jesus' instructions here are specific to Peter and to his pastoral call, the unique place he holds in the life of the church. It will look different for each of us. But whatever vocations and responsibilities you and I might have, they begin with a desire and affection for Jesus. Anything less cannot sustain the good and abundant life to which we are called. This is why the question of desires and loves, yours and mine, is of such great importance. Anger, proving someone else wrong, overcoming your enemies or the slander against you, will not sustain the life for which you were made. Proving yourself virtuous will not sustain you. Duty, doing the right thing, the thing I'm supposed to do, 
will not sustain the good and abundant life Jesus has for you. Rather, we must be seized with a great affection, with a love for Jesus. Our reading concludes with this cryptic description of Peter's death. Tradition has it that Peter, after a lifetime of feeding the sheep of Jesus, was crucified. At his request, upside down as a sign of humility in comparison to Christ. John frames his death here in reference to glorifying God. That is Peter who has loved his own life and so failed in following, failed in remaining with Jesus, will come to give that life in love, following Jesus to the end, glorifying God. This past week, the pastor of Wheaton Bible Church in Wheaton, Illinois, a man named Lon Allison, who was involved with the Billy Graham Center there, died of cancer. And reading a little bit about him, I don't know very much about him, I saw a particular thing he said when he was first diagnosed several years ago. When he was first diagnosed, Pastor Allison said this, he said, God has allowed this cancer to strike me. He can cure it in a nanosecond or allow it to grow within me. He is in charge, and I deeply desire he be glorified through it. That's a remarkable statement, a remarkable posture upon being diagnosed. How does such a posture come to happen? How does such a perspective come to be? I think the answer lies in the third lens for this question the excising of shame, the removal of shame. Jesus, of course, doesn't just ask one question in our reading. Rather, he asks one question, the same question, three times. Three, do you love me's, matching three denials. And the third of these questions wounds Peter. Verse 17 describes him as as, as grieved, greatly hurt. Jesus hurts him. Psychologist M. Scott Peck has differentiated between what he calls pseudo-community and community. Pseudo-community is the kind of life together we might experience at a dinner party among new acquaintances. At such a gathering, everyone is on their best behavior, and the topics of sex, religion, politics, potentially controversial, are studiously avoided. Don't rock the boat. Just keep your opinions to yourself. Pseudo-community. In contrast, Peck suggests community is where commitment to and responsibility for one another have been demonstrated. And that makes truth-telling and delving into challenging personal areas more possible. Where you can say the true and difficult thing because of the trust, the acceptance, and grace that's been known and shared together. With his followers, as he is full of grace and truth, Jesus does not do pseudo-community. His questions cut to the heart of the matter and to our hearts. To follow Jesus means you will be wounded, you will be grieved by Jesus, as Peter is here. To follow Jesus means your illusions about yourself will be exposed and put to death, and that hurts. Peter, for all his bravado in following, 
has been exposed. It hurts. Polite Canadian that I am, I can imagine a scenario where Jesus, the resurrected Lord, welcomes Peter and just does not mention the betrayal, the denial. Like that old Faulty Towers episode where the British hosts work so hard to not mention the war around their German guests. Just don't mention it. It'd be more polite. No biggie. It all worked out in the end like resurrection, right? Like it all worked out. Water off a duck's back. Let's just move on. The problem with such an approach, however, is that it does nothing for Peter. Sure, there might be the immediate relief of pseudo-relationship with Jesus, but the nagging memory would remain. The stain of that night and his betrayal, the question of what Jesus truly thought of him, and the question of who he really was would remain. To ignore and move on would do nothing for Peter's shame. To minimize and diminish what has been done does the wrongdoer no favors. Instead, Jesus brings Peter back, back to the memory, the threefold failure. Around the fire, the verses just before our reading describe Jesus as making this charcoal fire upon which they cook their breakfast. A fire just like the fire Peter had warmed himself around the fate, that fateful night of Jesus' death. And he asks him the question three times. He brings the memory to the surface. Not to rub Peter's face in it. Not to make him now prove his sincerity. This is not a test. Jesus knows. He knows all things. He knows Peter's heart. But he brings this memory to the surface. That the shame of it might be defanged. That the hurt, the question of it might be replaced. Jesus, still bearing the wounds of his cross, wounds Peter that he might be healed. That whenever he thinks of that failure, that denial, that betrayal, he can also bring to remembrance the confession of his love in the embrace and call of his Lord. I don't know if you noticed, but in the first time he asked the question, Jesus says, Simon, son of John. He uses Peter's original name. He uses his name for the first time since the very first time he called Peter. He saw Peter. He brings Peter back at the beach, the same place where he called him originally, and gives him a fresh start. This is what Jesus longs to do for each and every one of us, to heal, restore, and free. Not by minimizing or diminishing, not, that does us no favors but by excising, removing shame, taking it away. Upon the cross, in Jesus' unjust trial, torture, and death, the sins of the world are exposed for all their ugliness. The injustice and faithfulness of us all are brought to the surface. And in Jesus, the ugliness of those realities is dealt with, is expunged once and for all. But Jesus now, by his Spirit, longs to continue this work, to apply it to our lives, to bring to the surface, into the light, our sin, the shameful things we'd rather hide or wish we could just be rid of, we could tamp it down. I know so many of you, you've talked to me about, I can't believe I'm still struggling with this same thing. I can't believe that God allowed me to do this. 
The Spirit is at work bringing these things into the light to the surface, not to shame us, but to restore and heal, to make new, such that we could follow Jesus, such that we could draw near to him, even though he grieves and wounds us, exposes. And we can allow him to bring to the surface those shameful things, those failures of faith, trust, and love, the wounds we hide and run from. We can allow him, the living word, the wounded healer, the risen Lord, to make us new. It's in this way that he wins our love. He shows himself most lovely, most worthy of our deepest affections and desires. So do you love him? This is the defining question. Even more than who do you say I am, the question we began with, even more than a sense of what God's kingdom is like, the question of our love for Jesus is most vital. We're a, a pretty sophisticated group of people, educated, thoughtful, successful, busy. But our resources, our thoughtfulness, and our success, even put in religious terms, are not defining for our existence and life as a church. Rather, our life together, our fruitfulness for God's kingdom, our living out who God has made us to be, corporately, individually, stand or fall on how it is we answer this question. Stand or fall with our love for Jesus. Our heartfelt affection for the one who extends himself, who excavates our desires and excises our shame. We have one closing, final instruction. Our gospel reading concludes with this simple command of Jesus, follow me. For a long time now, I've articulated this command of Jesus in terms of language like patterning our lives after his. Do the same things Jesus did. Shape your life and person in the same way that he and his were shaped. This is a legitimate way to understand this command, and it helps make it concrete. Pray, attend to Scripture, engage the poor, practice hospitality the way that Jesus did. Do the stuff that Jesus did. It's legitimate. It's also, however, insufficient, wholly insufficient, because following, following here implies nearness, connection, intimacy, and affection. It implies being close to Jesus and wanting to be there, desiring to be in his presence. You can't follow at a distance. You cannot follow half-hearted. And Jesus is not a script of actions to follow, but a person, a person who wants and desires us. Following him involves intimacy, connection, nearness. So in addition to patterning your life after Jesus, the, the final instruction is this. Stay close to him. Find ways here at the table, in community, alone, whenever, however, to draw near to the presence of Jesus, who is most lovely. Draw near, foster intimacy in life with him. And let us speak of him, the goodness of who he is, the loveliness of all that he's done for us. 
As the old song goes, let us look full in his wonderful face. Keep company with him as an expression of your love. And that our love, your love, my love, might increase. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do confess to you that we have divided hearts. That we love the wrong things or we love things wrongly too much other than you. So we do in this moment, knowing your grace, your goodness, knowing that you extend yourself toward us, that you long for us, we do lift our hearts, divided, sin-stained. We lift the parts of you that we're ashamed of, that are shameful. We ask you to take our shame. We ask you to heal and restore. By your stripes we are healed. Now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that that healing and restoration would be ours in the name of Jesus. Would you show us freshly and rightly who you are, that we might be one more fully to you, that our hearts might be captured, seized with that great affection for you. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.